Head to netsuite.com slash briefing now for their one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Hey, everyone. I'm David Chalian, CNN's political director, and welcome to the CNN Political Briefing. On Tuesday, we heard from primary voters in Michigan who went for former President Donald Trump and President Joe Biden by huge majorities in their respective primaries. The key swing state is also a hub of Arab and Muslim Americans and was a test of their support for President Biden despite opposing his policies on the Israel-Gaza war. In 2020, nearly 146,000 Muslim Americans voted in the general election in Michigan, and Biden won the state by 150,000 votes. I'm hoping and expecting that these folks will come vote for Joe Biden in November. But right now, they have an issue they want to brought attention to, and it's working. Ashley Allison is the CEO of the Turner Connolly Group and worked on the 2020 Biden-Harris campaign, as well as Barack Obama's 2012 re-election. She's joining us this week to lend her strategic expertise to the critical question of how this Israel-Gaza conflict could impact the 2024 presidential election. We recorded our conversation on Wednesday afternoon. Ashley, thank you so much for being here. I'm so happy to be here with you. So I want to start by digging right into these Michigan primary results that we got this week and this movement for uncommitted, which was clearly a protest vote from Democrats of Biden's Israel-Gaza policies. And more than 100,000 people in the Democratic primary voted for uncommitted, obviously Joe Biden won the primary overwhelmingly. That wasn't the issue here. But the issue is this protest vote. And so I want to tap into your experience working in campaigns and tell me how you think the folks in Wilmington sort of processed this information coming in last night, woke up this morning. How does a campaign take this and deal with this, given that Michigan's 15 electoral votes could prove decisive in the fall? Yeah. So, you know, campaigns are hard. And so a night like last night doesn't make it any easier. But I think going into Michigan, people knew that there were going to be uncommitted voters and they just weren't sure how powerful it was going to be. When you wake up tonight, you see over 100,000 people decided to engage in the electoral process um, on the Democratic side. You have to be excited because this this concern about people aren't going to engage in the election this year, that kind of dissuades that some. But then you have to figure out How am I going to get these folks over into my column? And so you have to really have a conversation about where, how do we meet this community where they are? I would really suggest to the campaign, this is not the time to shame people for feeling how they feel on either side of an issue, but to engage with them in a very authentic way and not just in a way to say, I checked the box and I met with these folks. But to really have a conversation about why the Biden administration is making the decisions it is making on the policy right now and where you think the administration might be by November. A lot can happen in eight months. And that's that's the test that the campaign is going to have. How do they move these folks in eight months? And so this morning, I'm not overly excited as the Biden campaign, but I know I have an opportunity to engage these folks and hopefully, at the end of the day, get the outcome everybody wants, which is peace for Israel and Palestine. So you don't necessarily think that 
It's as transactional as the administration has to move and change its policy to assuage this group of voters that could prove consequential. Not Maybe many of them wouldn't actually go and vote for Trump, but maybe they just wouldn't show up for Biden, I think, is probably the bigger risk. Yeah, you know, I like to um, talk about politics through the lens of relationships. You know, if you're like dating someone and they do something that makes you really, really mad and they buy you flowers, you're like, great. But like, we have to talk about this, you know, (laughs) in order for the relationship to be sustained. So the Biden administration can bring flowers in the form of calling for a ceasefire or changing their policy positions. But there's some harm and hurt in that community. And if you want to be in real relationship with your voters, you need to have a conversation and begin to repair if you move on your policy and repair that issue. It, it's not just going to be, I do this and then we're all said and done. And I think the community actually wants that. I talked to some uncommitted voters yesterday to get a sense of where they were feeling. And they really range in spectrum. I talked to a blue dog Dem and a Bernie supporter from 2016. And, you know, the, the diversity of this voting block is real. And so they each of them will need something different from the campaign, but it's not going to be you know, I flip the switch and all harm is repaired. But I do think harm can be repaired. The ideological divide that you just described is fascinating, that there's not sort of... Yeah. I mean, I I guess there's a cohesiveness when it comes to this particular policy area, but not necessarily an ideological kumbaya across the entire spectrum of the party. That's really, really interesting. To your point about the relationship, I mean, it seems that the Biden team was a little... They had a bit of a footfall here. I mean, they first sent people from the campaign and then that was sort of rejected that folks in Dearborn really wanted to hear from administration policy folks, more senior level and not the campaign manager. And it sounds like what you're saying is, yes, you have to listen. Yes, you have to be in the relationship, hear them out. But is a policy shift also required here? I think so. I actually think so. I I think in some instances, in election cycles, it's not a requirement. In this instance, I think it is. Because we are not directly the parties in this interaction. This is Palestine and Israel. And so we're somewhat of a third party in this war. And so because we're not the direct parties involved, I think People who want to cease fire see this issue in a different way and feel like we have more ability to be fluid in where we are in our position. And I'm not sure it's going to require every policy demand to be met. I know that that is the ask, but I also think people are reasonable and understand the circumstance we are in. But I do think people desperately want to hear the president call for a ceasefire and I want to—I I don't want to speak for anybody, so I'll speak for myself as someone who has called for a ceasefire. I am not asking for a ceasefire because I want Israel to be unsafe, because I want—I don't want Israel to exist. I want them to be able to live as a thriving democracy, but I want that for Palestinians also. And so I want peace, and I, I, that is ultimately what I think people—99.9% of the folks who voted uncommitted— for this reason are calling for. And so I think it requires the administration to be tougher on Netanyahu and also to actually call for a ceasefire. We're going to take a quick break. More on how Joe Biden's approach to the Israel-Gaza conflict is impacting his re-election bid. That's when we come back. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. 
at this moment, the part of the protest that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome back. We're here with Ashley Allison, campaign strategist and former White House senior policy advisor. So, as you know, better than anyone, having worked on campaigns, politics, it's a game of addition. It's a game of margins. And I'm wondering, how, what is your takeaway? So 100,000 people or so show up, cast this protest vote. How much of that do you assume just sort of comes home naturally to their DNA in the fall? And how much of that may still be a resistant slice to Joe Biden? And therefore determining, like, how problematic is this result for the Biden campaign? Well, this is going to be a close election between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, who likely are the two folks on the top of the ticket in November. And so it all is an important slice. That 100,000 could be a determining factor in November. And so you need to get as many of those folks to show up and vote Joe Biden. And as I said earlier, it's going to take different tactics because the reality is the coalition was so fragile in 2020 that we were able to build that any part falling off. So if you if you can't get that whole 100,000 from the uncommitted to vote, then you have to surge in another column. And so what do you have to do to get that to surge? It is a game of addition and subtraction. And so you want to get as many surges and as many columns of constituencies as possible so that your whole is larger to try and widen the margin. So I, I can't give an exact number of that of percentage. But a lot. Almost all is what I would say. My mathematical turn is almost all. <laughs> and it's not just, yes, I understand it's these 100,000 people, but it's what it represents, right? Because it's not, this isn't just an Arab-American population protest. This hits some other key core constituencies that are part of this Biden coalition that is a little frayed at the moment. So young people, progressives, he needs to up the numbers in all of these columns, voters of color. He's not in a position of strength right now. So so does that make last night's results that much more potentially alarming, just given the overall state of where Biden stands with the American people? I'm an optimist and I always think there's a way forward. I think you have to if you are going to be able to survive in the times that we are in. There is a great opportunity here to show leadership as the Biden administration. What would it look like, knowing where our coalition is now, to be able to hit the numbers we hit in 2020 and surpass because they met the moment? That is a great opportunity in front of them that I think could be met. And I think that the team is up for the challenge. Look, I know the campaign director very, very well. We shared an office at the White House for months. And I saw her work and I know where her heart is. And I also worked with the president and I know where his heart is. But some things have to shift right now to get voters to be there. It's interesting, though, a lot of folks talk about this through the lens of progressives, Arab Americans and young people. But, you know, a thousand black pastors called for a ceasefire. This is a this is an issue that is spanning across most demographics. I don't know if it's the determining factor for a vote for all of those constituencies in November, but it's it's at least top three for a lot of them. And so being able to weave this coalition together 
when one person on your team succeeds, the whole team wins. And so I think if the folks who are calling for uncommitted or a ceasefire have some success, it gives hope across our movement. I'll also say I talked to someone last night about uncommitted, and he told me that after the success last night, they are looking at other states. Now, it will look different in other states, but that folks have reached out and said, you know, there's an opportunity to really keep this message going until we see some shift in policy at the administration. So it's an organizing opportunity on the uncommitted side, but it also is a building opportunity I think the campaign can utilize. I mean, the president has not been able to go anywhere, give a speech anywhere mm-hmm. without being confronted by the passions of people on this side calling for a ceasefire. And of course, you know, I always think of the counterfactual. Well, what would it be if Joe Biden had the position of Rashida Tlaib, let's say, wouldn't that open up a flank of attack politically in a whole different way for him where some moderates or independents or Israel supporters or just full on sort of Republican warfare, like what that would look like? Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't think that the pendulum can swing one way, either too far one way or the other. The theory of coalition work is that you don't get everything you want. You have to compromise. If you want to be in community with everyone, you can't just say, if I don't get it my way, I'm going to walk. And so that's why I think that there is a place to actually be in negotiation with this community to try and find a pathway to peace, but still keep moderates and independents engaged. I'm going to tell you, it is harder this cycle to knit this coalition together than it was in 2020. And I know firsthand because I had to do it in 2020. (laughs) And that was my job. And I know that this is a harder task. And I've given a lot of thought about what I would do. And I don't have a perfect solution. Sorry, you don't mean that that is just because of the Israel-Hamas issue? No, I think because we haven't had Donald Trump as president for four years. And so... I'm not saying people forget, but when you when you don't wake up every day with Donald Trump as your president in a fight or flight mode, your body does decompress a little bit. And I think the electorate writ large has decompressed because we know we don't have a lunatic with the nuclear codes right now. But then that decompression can also be like, well, it gives you a little luxury to contemplate what else is possible. And so I think people are in, and I'm not saying this for the uncommitted, but I think there is a component of the electorate that is in a state of contemplation of what else is possible in the world, which makes it a the sense of urgency is not there with COVID, with George Floyd, with Donald Trump being the backdrop of it. No one has forgotten that, but we're not living in it. So we just are experiencing the world differently right now. You know, it's why I think the Biden campaign is placing this enormous bet that the Donald Trump contrast and just putting Donald Trump front and center every day will be one, if not a solitary singular path to success, uh, one of the critical building blocks to success. Absolutely. And I think that that is an important strategy. It just cannot be the only strategy. And it definitely should not be the leading message right now to a community that feels very, very hurt. I asked the voters yesterday, I said, but what about Donald Trump? And they said, well, they gave me a lot of nuance, but they closed with, they said, you know, with Donald Trump, my family couldn't visit me because they weren't allowed in the country. It feels like under Joe Biden, they can't visit me because they might be dead. And I was like, oh yes, that, that, that 
is something I had thought about, but hearing you say that. And so it's not, it's not the, it's not the convincing message in this moment. And it's why something around policy has to shift beyond just like the conversations, I think, to move this community. Ashley Allison, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thanks, David. That's it for this week's edition of the CNN Political Briefing. And we want to hear from you. Is there a question you'd like answered about this election cycle? Is there a guest you really want to hear from? Give us a call at 301-842-8338 or send us an email at cnnpoliticalbriefing at gmail.com. And you might just be featured on a future episode of the podcast. So don't forget to tell us your name, where you're from, how we can reach you, and if you give us permission to use the recording on the podcast. CNN Political Briefing is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Madeline Thompson. Our senior producer is Haley Thomas. Dan DeZula is our technical director, and Steve Lichtai is executive producer of CNN Audio. Support from Alex Manasseri, Robert Mathers, John Dianora, Lainey Steinhardt, Jameis Andrist, Nicole Pesseru, and Lisa Namoro. And special thanks to Katie Hinman. We'll be back with a new episode on Friday, March 8th. Thanks so much for listening. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com briefing. netsuite.com briefing.